0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Today three major wars are underway in the world in ukraine in myanmar and in ethiopia there are another 17 significant wars going on right now and in fact if you include the mexican drug wars the only populated continent without war is australia perhaps that's why in his christmas day message pope francis said the world is suffering from a famine of peace yet History teaches us peace is possible, even inevitable. It's just that the path is unclear and dangerous. Well, on the God Forbid panel today, two people who have spent half a century between them helping to bring peace to the bitterest of conflicts in Northern Ireland, in Israel-Palestine and across Southeast Asia. Reverend Dr. Gary Mason founded and directs the Belfast-based peace organisation Rethinking Conflict. Gary Mason, welcome
2: back to God Forbid. Okay, nice to be with you.
1: Also with us is Dr Emma Leslie. She's an Australian-Cambodian. Her work in Southeast Asia saw her nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, no less. She's the founder and director of the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. It's in Cambodia, but she's visiting Newcastle in New South Wales. Emma Leslie, welcome to God Forbid.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Emma, if we just name two of the conflicts you've been closely involved with the civil war in Myanmar and the Philippines government war with the uh, Moro Islamic Front separatists. Am I right in saying both those conflicts began before you were born and might not end in your lifetime?
3: Um, most certainly they began before I was born. I think um, we always hope that they would end in our lifetimes but I think what we look for is progress in our lifetimes and the amount of investment we can make. So concentrating less on um, what can be done before I die, but equally what can be done most immediately to try and make some kind of shift in the dynamic.
1: Is it true to say, notwithstanding those statistics I mentioned, that in the 21st century we're statistically more peaceful than ever?
3: I think in the 21st century we're grappling with complex, complex systems which are really interconnected to each other. And part of the challenge that we have is a lot of the tools or technologies, if you like, the kinds of ways we do mediation and peace processes, a whole lot of what was applied in Northern Ireland doesn't necessarily work for the complexity of conflict dynamics we're dealing with now. And so what we're really needing to do right now is to to do a bit of an overhaul or review of the kinds of what I call big man mediation flying out from the UN system into places, dropping in and trying to put two parties together. So what we need to be looking at is a kind of investment into conflict systems which shift those dynamics and sort of move them in a in a cyclone kind of spiral, if you like, um, towards inevitable peace. And exactly as you said, peace is always possible. We know that from history but it requires a significant amount of attention, investment, engagement. And I think that's what we're now suffering from is a lack of that over the last 10 or 15 years.
1: Well, let's turn to Gary Mason, uh, who had a hand in building peace in Northern Ireland, both before and after the Good Friday agreements. Gary, this statistic that by some calculations we're more peaceful than ever. What, What do you think of that in the 21st century?
2: I think the answer to that is is really yes and no in many ways. I mean, the the Irish peace process, as as my colleague there has said, is still ongoing. Um, George Mitchell, who chaired the talks that led up to the Good Friday Agreement, which actually is 25 years old this year, but it's still a fragile peace process and it needs continuous management. Um, Mitchell actually said on Good Friday, April the 10th there, that if you think getting this agreement was difficult, implementing it will be even more difficult. And while it's been one of the most successful peace processes of the last 50 years, it does still need managed on a daily basis. So for example, we still haven't got the architecture for dealing with the past. So legacy still hunts us, memory still hunts us, the chaos that has ensued from Brexit, which is another story that you could do a program on on its own. So it's still a fragile peace process, and I mean, as my colleague there has said, there's two concepts around us. There's the political peace process, and there's the social peace process. But politicians, by their very nature, are people of short-term memory. They work on the assumption that once the deal is done, that societal healing automatically follows. And in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. So that's why we need civic society involved. We need women's groups. We need religious actors. We need economists. We need business people because it's a long process. I mean, the Irish peace process, I mean, we could rewind the DVD today to the 12th century. You're dealing with 800 years of legacy, chaos, bitterness, rebellions regularly every 30 to 40 years. You can't press the fast forward button and assume that's going to end overnight.
1: You say, Gary, that invariably conflict involves dispute over three things, land, identity, and religion. Yeah. If you're saying religion causes all wars, what better argument could there be to do away with religion, Reverend Mason?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's one I define. a phrase I often use is there's toxic religion and toxic politics. Uh, so the Irish conflict that I lived through from 69 to 1998 was not a religious war in the sense that we were not fighting over 16th, 17th century doctrinal issues. But what I would argue, this God is on my side mentality spilled into that. So, I mean, let's move away from Myanmar and Ireland. Look at the United States at the moment. Look at the rise of Christian nationalism. I mean, Christian nationalism is not Christian. It's nothing to do with the resurrection of Jesus or sacred texts what they have done is hijacked certain religious motifs. I mean, for example, 6th of January, outside the Capitol building, you had a cross when people were committing violence. So a colleague of mine, young Japanese professor who I met, said a very profound sentence. She said, an incomprehensible act becomes comprehensible when told in conjunction with religion. So it's very easy to borrow religion And use this God is on my side mentality. I mean, one of our most uh, lethal groups, the Ulster Volunteer Force, pro-British non-state actors, their motto was for God and Ulster. So we all assume when we go to war that God is on our side. The land issue is normally there as well. And identity, which really my identity is superior to your identity. So I'm more than happy to put my hands up as a religious leader and say both apartheid and slavery in the United States was theologically propped up by corrupt systems. But they still used theology to prop up slavery. I mean, the doctrine of discovery was a papal bull going back to the 15th century, which basically gave people of my skin colour, white people, an imprimatur for rape, genocide, murder in the New World, because we were superior, both theologically and identity-wise, to those other people, or what sociologists call othering. It's still happening today, as you and I and my colleague knows.
1: Well, it's happening today most particularly in Russia and Ukraine. Emma Leslie, um, we're speaking at a time when the specter of nuclear war hangs over Eastern Europe. What are the different ways this can play out?
3: For sure. Um, I mean, I would argue that nuclear war always helps us over our head. I've been to North Korea several times, and I think we're all acutely aware of how this can tipple in different parts of the world, Pakistan, India, and so on and so forth. So in a way, in my view, Ukraine is a little bit out of proportion to the number of conflicts that we're dealing with across the world, but partly because it's on on European doorsteps and so therefore gets a lot of attention. How does it play out? I mean, it plays out with a hell of a lot of suffering and a loss of life. Um, to a point where some kind of circumstances or dynamics change. Somebody dies, some kind of leader dies, some kind of tipping point is reached where some kind of negotiations go forward. But we're certainly not there yet. And um, I think a number of factors play into that. So the involvement of the United States, how China might decide to weigh in or not. At the moment, China hasn't weighed in. Power, resources and fear are what I think most conflicts are driven by. And I think you can see that in Ukraine is the the tussle for power. This is about resources. And I don't think we talk about that often enough. Who is benefiting from the gas what is the oil distribution, da 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 da, but also people's primal fear that they'll disappear, that they can't their identity is not respected. And just to shift that to Myanmar, that's exactly the dynamics we see there in Ethiopia, in the Philippines is at the end of the day, people fight because they think it's their last avenue to be able to protect themselves, their families, their land, as Gary said, but, but equally, their sense of survival, their sense to go on. So I don't think we've seen any kind of tipping point in Ukraine yet. This will go on for some time.
1: So Reverend Dr. Gary Mason.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's very valid. I would also say that there is a religious dimension to Ukraine and Russia. And uh, I did this lecture a few months ago in the United States and people went, really? And, and the argument for that is there was another Vladimir that uh, none of us probably remember because he was alive. Uh, I think it was around the year 1000. And he was called Vladimir the Rus. And Vladimir the Rus was converted to Christianity in Ukraine in Kiev and insisted that the whole city was baptised, a kind of mass baptism. And so Kiev is where the Russian Orthodox Church was born. It was not born in Moscow or any other Russian city. And, I mean, Putin himself has said Ukraine is a cradle of the Russian Orthodox Church. There's actually a cathedral that Putin, humbly of course, in inverted commas, has dedicated to himself, where he's pictures of himself and Joseph Stalin and Crimea in a Russian Orthodox cathedral. So so think of that. I mean, Stalin, a mass murderer, is sitting alongside Putin. So Emma Leslie is right. Power of the church Mm. and the power of people's egos and toxic religion are also spilling into that conflict. Analyzing there, why do people go to war? I often kind of say there's, there's kind of three types of peace process. The first one, Sri Lanka, where the government forces crush the Tamil Tigers. Now, there's no peace process. There's no negotiation. There's no paper signed. And so none of us in this conversation today can say, well, I guarantee you, Gary, the Tamil Tigers will never rise again. I don't think they're going to rise next week or next year. Because they were annihilated. Yeah, but their kids are still alive. And their grandkids. So the power of memory will be passed from generation to generation to generation. And so they could arise. The second type of peace process is South Africa, where you get colonial regime change at the top, but not a lot of difference in the bottom and a hell of a lot of corruption in the process from Jacob Zumu, etc, etc, etc. Most blacks in townships still live in appalling conditions. Sexual crime against women, record highs. So you may have removed the structural concept of apartheid, but there is no economic peace process on the ground. And then you have the Irish concept, where you end up with a kind of second preference peace process. You try to create a win-win situation for both sides. But you're exactly right. Same within the Israeli-Palestinian theatre. Unless you deal with the root causes of the conflict, the war will continue. It may stop, but it eventually rises again because a new generation steps into the breach. Well,
1: Gary Mason, you mentioned uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict. It's that which we'll look at next on God Forbid. (music) In 2008, Dr. Isildan Abu-Alej worked as a gynaecologist at a hospital in his home of Gaza. When war broke out between Israel and Hamas, his three daughters and a niece were all killed by two Israeli tank shells. He found out they were dead during a live TV interview, and Israeli viewers listened as he cried into the phone. Well, to this day, the loss angers him, but it has not embittered him. His book, I Shall Not Hate, Dr. Izeldin abu now lives in Canada and spoke with Philip
4: Adams. Anger. We must feel angry. If I want to feel angry, I go to Gaza to see and to visit the graves of my daughters, to feel outraged, to give me energy, to be in a charge of not accepting what happened, and to direct my energy as a lean, do more, work more not accept it that's the anger and the outrage each of us when we feel angry about others whom we care about that we want the good for them and we advise them and to act more to change the current situation and it's time for everyone when we watch what is happening in this world to feel angry and we feel the anger and the outrage, but it is not to be emotional only. It must be accompanied by action to be translated into positive action of changing the causes which made us angry. But, and it's acute, and it's acute, it can subside. Sometimes you feel angry and then it goes outside. We don't want to feel that, but the hate don't allow the anger or hate to be changed to be complicated, to go to uh, hate, because hate, in my life, if I wanted to find and to count the people who did bad things in my life, uh, the, the list will be endless. It is not going to work, and hate is a blindness. The antidote of hate, revenge, is to succeed. To be steadfast, standing strongly, determined, consistent, in front of the one that you plan to hate, who doesn't think of you of to succeed. The antidote of hate and revenge is success. That's my daughter Shada, who was severely wounded. She lost the sight in one eye. She lost two fingers, but she was determined, and she went to the high school to study after what did she suffer during the whole year, from the start to the end. And she did it. And the day we moved to Canada, she succeeded. 96% As nothing happened. Now she's studying computer engineering. And that's the challenge to those whom you wanted to hate, to challenge them, to succeed, to show them. They are waiting for you to collapse. Don't show them that you are collapsing. You are, will never collapse. You will be stronger and direct your energy towards the future.
1: And that's Dr. Isildin abu who works for reconciliation between Israel and Palestine in the Holy Land. During the war in Gaza, he lost three of his daughters to Israeli shelling. Well, Emma Leslie, what's your response to what you've heard?
3: I mean, he, I've heard him speak many times and I think he always reminds me of the Cambodian Buddhist monk um, Maha Gosananda, who spoke about the suffering of Cambodians through the period of genocide and civil war. And yet here is a country of Cambodians today who are generous and good-hearted, and he used to say out of such suffering can only come compassion. And I think um, what's being tapped into in that conversation is like the antithesis of what we were talking about before is this this fear, this hunger for power, this greed for resources is the human capacity for compassion for shared humanity and for for endless love, for this ability to be, have this boundless love that defeats hate. I was in Nepal a few weeks ago and I met this extraordinary young woman, 17, 18 years old, and she had, during the, the Maoist conflict, stepped on a landmine and lost her leg. And so for several years had been a recluse and hidden, lost her leg, couldn't go out into society. But today says she wants to meet the person who planted the landmine so that she can liberate him from the pain he must suffer, knowing what he had done and, and the pain he had caused. So I think each and every one of us have that within us. And part of the job of people, Gary and me, and I wish a million more, was to be able to unlock that and connect the dots for that and inspire people with those kinds of stories. Um, because I think the capacity for people to come out of pure violence, um, utter confusion, bombardment, torture—all of those things—is is something very beautiful. It's as if ash out of ashes comes such such beauty. But it has to be supported and nurtured, and 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 it can't come naturally for everybody. We have to accompany people in that. So, yeah, these stories. I mean, they're
1: all over the world. And Gary Mason, looking at the Israel-Palestine conflict, which you've worked so hard on, it's asymmetrical. One side has nuclear weapons, the other often uses slings to throw rocks at the enemy. What are the implications of this for a peace process?
2: I mean... Again, rewinding the DVD, going back to the early 1990s, to the Oslo Accords. Interesting. Uh, I mean, if the three of us were having this conversation in the early 1990s, you would be saying, well, look, Gary, uh, South Africa's over the line. It seems the Israelis and Palestinians with Oslo are also over the line. But you cursed Irish can never sort yourselves out.
1: <laughs> now you've sorted yourself out. We remember President Clinton and PLO leader Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin all on the White House lawn, but it wasn't the streets of Janine or Jerusalem where the
2: peace went. And that is why, you know, as we've said there, as Emma said, that's why you need a social peace process. I mean, the elite can come in and possibly do a deal or allegedly do a deal, as they thought at Oslo. But it wasn't sold to people on the ground. So if you were to ask me for a prediction, will there be peace in the Middle East in the next couple of years? I think my answer is categorically no. I wish I was wrong. But I think there are a number of organizations there that are trying painfully, and it's not easy, to try to build peace from the grassroots up. So you need a civic peace process, you need civic society into that space. And interestingly, when Israelis and Palestinians are with me in Belfast, our peace process is not identical to the Middle East, but there are things we got right and things we got wrong that allow conversations to begin and relationships to be formed. And that's one of the keys. It's the quiet conversations that we facilitate that sometimes can be the beginning of peace. I mean, in our space, we were talking there about, I mean, why do people take up arms? As a colleague of mine said, someone in the late 1960s did not fly over Northern Ireland, Sprays all with lunatic gas, and we all woke up one day and started, decided to start killing each other. There was a context here of centuries of toxic politics and toxic religion that made young men of my generation, like I'm talking people at 15, 16, 17 years of age, they didn't turn into killers overnight. They were fed a diet of hatred, uh, or as one Jewish theologian said, dehumanization precedes genocide. We had the ability here and in Russia and in Ukraine to dehumanize the other ones. The Holocaust is another classic example where you dehumanize a person. And that's why we need to build relationships, sometimes behind the scenes, where people can humanize one another. That's the key to stopping killing.
1: You might call it how to have an enemy rather than how to create. A mythical friendship that's just not on the horizon. How to be a good enemy? We'll look at that on God Forbid up next. (music) Melissa Flora Bixler has thought a lot about enemies. You see, as a pastor of the Mennonite Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, she is a pacifist. The Gospels say Jesus called on his followers to love their enemies but they say Jesus resisted his enemies too. Melissa's book, How to Have an Enemy, tries to find out what works in practice and her interview begins with Meredith Lake for Soul Search.
5: There's a very famous passage. It it occurs a couple of times in slightly different forms in the Gospels, but in Luke, it's phrased like this, I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. What do you make of that? What kind of resource is that for you in, I guess, that challenge to love your enemies?
0: Yeah, I, I think one of the most shocking parts of that scripture from Luke is also that Jesus is saying this to the people who are experiencing this profound repression by an occupying Roman military force. Um, yeah. And so not not only does he offer this teaching, but he's offering it to people who are who are who are suffering um, every day. And you know, as I've um reading that again in the in the context of Jesus' life across Luke, especially, thinking about Again, this Jesus who refuses to play by the rules that are set up by the powers around him, right? If knowing that our attempts to inflict violence for violence simply create a new system of violence, Um, our attempts to take from, from people who are harming us simply reiterate that system in our life again. And what if we just say, we're not going to do that anymore? We're going to create a different kind of world among ourselves where everyone is sharing what they have in common. And we have this beloved community that's starting to emerge that Jesus has brought um, together um, to be with and for one another as he is with and for them. So it's not, I mean, I just think it can be so easily
5: misheard if I take your reading of it as a kind of a recipe for quietism minorities are just being asked to sacrifice themselves again you know someone hits you, turn the other cheek you can you can see how that can kind of be taken the wrong way and just exacerbate the suffering at the same time you're you're making a more subtle suggestion for what that really means. It's almost an act of resistance to turn the other cheek
0: I think it is, but I'm also reminded that that Jesus is the one who says you know if Anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble should put a millstone around their neck and throw themselves into the sea. Right? There's this is also a Jesus who sees injustice and pain in the world and turns over tables in the temple and and so I I think it's important for us to read this in the context of the character of of Jesus of who Jesus is and his righteous um, anger I think is what and you're his righteous anger right that he quotes the these um psalms we call them the imprecatory psalms these psalms of of justice that are filled with these images of these sometimes very disturbing images of violence Jesus quotes those throughout the throughout this, the gospels um Yeah, really recognizing the fullness of who Jesus is as we read about the position that we take towards um, a world that has, has lost its way, in Rome in particular, in this case. I noticed that your book
5: opens with an epitaph from Psalm 85, verse 13. Justice shall march in the forefront, and then peace shall follow the way. What does that mean to you? Or why have you adopted that as your kind of tagline for this for this larger work of thinking through what it means to have an enemy and then to love that enemy.
0: What's so striking about that phrase from the psalm is that i, I think so often we have flipped those around that if we if we find a way to peace um that that justice will somehow magically emerge from it. Um whereas i think the consistent story of scripture, the consistent message of the Bible, is that creating a just world creates the structures that we need for a peaceable world. And we can't have the latter until we have been willing to do the work for the former.
1: Melissa Flora Bixler rephrasing that slogan, no justice, no peace. She was speaking with Meredith Lake. Well, Dr. Emma Leslie, this is what you work on very much the structural causes of war, the structural obstacles to peace. Uh, and yet they were talked about thousands of years ago as well.
3: For sure. And I, I mean, I think that passage is so powerful in the sense that, I mean, for me, what Jesus is saying is don't dehumanize yourself in hating your enemy. Um, I think the question of justice or peace, which comes first, I mean, for me, they're one and the same. And that's why we talk about conflict transformation. Um, But I think part of what I'm frustrated about in the world today is that I don't think that justice is that difficult. And what we've tended to do is turn justice into something that's quite retributive, that it has to be a tribunal or some kind of legal or judicial process. We faced that in Cambodia. We had a a tribunal to deal with a terrible genocide, a loss of a whole generation, 1.7 million people gone, Um, and a tribunal that trialled five people and cost um, $360 million over nine years, and now three of those people are dead. So Cambodians don't feel that that brought them justice. What's the root cause of that kind of genocide? It's inequity. It's inequality. Do we have that? Do we have a sense of equity and equality in Cambodia today? Well, I would say no. The poorer are getting poorer. In Myanmar, why are people in a struggle with each other? Because they haven't found a way to share power. And so really part of what justice for me is about is actually saying Here are the bad things we did. Actually, President Jacawi did such an interesting thing recently. He listed the nine times in history that the state was wrong in relation to people. Now, you could say that that wasn't hard, that that was an easy thing to do, but I don't think it was extraordinarily beyond the realm of possibility either. I mean, we had our own apology in Australia, but we could do so much more that would address the root causes of conflicts today, Australia included, conflicts that are below the surface, that are bubbling away there, that haven't become violent, although we've seen violence in Alice Springs this week. But we need to really hold those as the questions of justice. Justice doesn't come when we put somebody on trial and we blame somebody for a whole... Um, societal violent conflict upheaval, what we really need to do is dig deeper into what, what caused this, what's in our constitutions, our laws, our policies, our economic systems, which exclude people. When we address those things with political will, with civil society, religious and political leaders working together, then actually we'll be achieving justice and then peace will flow, yes, very naturally. But we get surprised when violence pops up in places and we think, well, where did this come from? And now let's manage it. Let's take alcohol away from people. Let's um, send in a, an armed force. And the difficulty with this in the 21st century is that conflicts are so interconnected. And so when you do treat Palestinian communities the way that you do, then Islamic communities in other parts of the world get angry when young people in Hong Kong are oppressed by the Chinese state, young people in Myanmar and Thailand and Taiwan and other places get inspired and become part of that movement. So the interconnectivity of issues now um, means that the conflicts are interconnected. So even if we solved Israel and Palestine um, with some kind of peace agreement tomorrow, and I agree with Gary's way earlier comment about we're not that great at implementation, We're not that great at implementation because we're actually not interested in addressing those justice questions. And if we can get away with a tribunal and a quick apology, then good for us. But we don't really want to dig deeper than that.
2: Hmm. What's your take on this, Gary Mason? There's there's a great article, actually. The guy that wrote it sadly died uh, quite recently, a guy called Peter Gabel, an article called Humiliation is the Root of All Terrorism. So your readers can Google that and read it. It's a worthwhile read. Like any peacemaker, I condemn violence. I condemn terrorism. But the condemnation is not enough. Because I had to ask myself, I was never involved in political violence or terrorism, whatever phraseology folk want to use.
1: But you knew a lot. In fact, you were a a confidant to uh, loyalist militias. Oh, yeah.
2: And so you have to ask the question, what makes young people, and it is primarily, let's be honest, primarily under 25s in Israel, Palestine, and my space and many other spaces as well. What makes them want to kill someone? What's the reason for that? And we had 30,000 prisoners went through our penal system during the conflict. So think of that, 30,000. They were all released or they served their time. Part of the Good Friday Agreement was the release of prisoners. All those 30,000 prisoners, since they have been released, 2% 2% have reoffended. you hear that statistic 2%. Some of them I know haven't even got a car parking ticket since they were released from prison. So they weren't natural born killers or psychopaths. Now, there was a percentage in every population be that Cambodia, Myanmar, Australia, Canada, the US, MySpace who are natural born killers. So something made these young men and to a lesser degree young women take up violence. We have to ask what were the reasons? I mean, the New York Times journalist Brett Stevens says, in order to disagree well, you need to understand well. So while I condemn political violence, the condemnation is not enough. I need to ask myself the question what possessed a generation to move towards violence? Because if those young men and women had been born in Melbourne, Vancouver, Rio de Janeiro, the vast majority of them never would have been in prison.
1: But do not some conflicts reach a point where war is the least bad outcome, w- where some enemies uh, are so fixed in their positions of evil they need to be destroyed? Most obviously, you know, Hitler in World War II. We think of the, the Mexico drug wars. We think of Islamic State in Syria. I mean, how do you ne- do a peace negotiation with the Mexican drug lord?
2: And, and it, is, it is another point, but I would say... The people that are controlling that, the majority of people that are drug runners for Mexican cartels, you can be darn sure they're coming from impoverished neighbourhoods in Mexico, but they're being manipulated. I mean, one theologian writing on this recently said, the only just war of the 20th century was the Second World War. Now, people can argue and debate that, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but you need to drill down to ask, why have these drug cartels in Mexico been so successful? And for many of them, they're preying on the poor. The vast majority of people who went to prison in my space were from working class and neighbourhoods. On both sides. On both sides, yeah. And they bring the identity issue into it. I mean, I would argue around Brexit, and I'm not a supporter of Brexit. Brexit was to do with identity. It was to do with English nationalism. The other coming into my country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the othering aspect was spilling around there, even within that Brexit debate as well.
1: And what role in Southeast Asia, Emma Leslie, does uh, identity and religion play in conflict?
3: Well, it's obviously massive, but um, I would say that it's the tools that are used to manipulate, divide and rule, to mobilise people to, to fight. Um, we've seen the genocide in Rakhine State um, against the Rohingya just six years ago. Um, and actually, honestly, over 25 years, really, a, a steady, consistent manipulation of that identity, which has served a centrist, Burman military state in being able to get others to deflect from what they've been doing, to mobilize people to war, to say here is a serious threat. And that's why I would argue still that I think fear is the biggest driving cause of it all. It doesn't matter whether it's Buddhists versus Muslims um, in other parts of the world, other types of religious divides, identity Moros versus Filipinos. At the end of the day, it's the fear that I will lose everything, that I will, that I'm not safe, that my life or my family are at risk, that mobilizes people. I mean, people like General Ming online, who who did a coup d'état Myanmar two years ago, um, are in fact under international law criminal. But that is driven still by a system or a structure that has prevented ethnic people, different religious identities, to be able to share in the power of Myanmar, to be able to speak their language freely, to be able to to live in the lands that were theirs, and that have been taken away from them, to benefit from the resources that are taken exactly from their places, but not given back to them in any sort of Education, health system, whatever, whatever.
1: Does that make you want to take sides, but you can't because you're a peace facilitator?
3: Oh no! I mean, we stand for peace and justice, don't we? And so we get to name things that are not right in that. But it doesn't ever mean, similar to the Bible verse we heard, that we don't get to, that we can't keep um, reaching out to those that you might consider evil or an enemy. I do believe that you can't always negotiate with somebody who has done such terror. I think there is a point where we have to look at what are the circumstances around that that we can change. And that's why I think um, it is difficult to see in a lot of the conflicts we're talking about today, where you could sit down with two parties and have a mediator come in and, and negotiate a peace agreement that we would expect to be implemented. I think it is about changing the dynamics setting some values, political leadership. I think we've moved beyond the day of, I mean, if you remember, the first UN envoy was Volker Bernadotte who went to Israel-Palestine with the first African-American UN negotiator, Ralph Bunch. But in those days, that conflict wasn't interconnected to conflicts all around the world, that you couldn't see it on Facebook, that we didn't have all of these tools to mobilise people to nationalism and so on. So I do think negotiating with somebody like Putin, like um, Ming Online, does make it very difficult because it's not really an equal table. These people have taken advantage of an unjust system. It's the system that we're trying to challenge and change, not the person.
1: And Gary Mason, the interconnectedness of these conflicts, big and small, is that a threat and an
2: opportunity? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's important to say that one of the keys to the ending of the Irish conflict was international involvement. Um, I mean, initially, from a British perspective, uh, there was no outside interference. I mean, the British were determined to resolve this on their own steam. 1985, we had the Anglo-Irish Agreement, where both the British and Irish said, we need to talk more, we need to engage more. The role of Irish America and the United States, and particularly Bill Clinton coming into that, changed the dynamic as well. And it did internationalise it. Think of the International Fund for Ireland um, that gave a billion dollars to grassroots peace building. The Special European Union Projects Board, another billion euro. And interestingly, the MEPA funding that was passed in the United States for the Middle East, uh, 250 million dollars already, Pouring into Israel and Palestine. And what that's trying to do is grassroots peace building, because this is not just about politicians. You've got to change the conditions on the ground. So you think for our tiny space, 1.6 million people, I've already just alluded there to a billion euro and a billion dollars. And very little money has gone into the Israeli Palestinian grassroots peace building until this Alloy Act was passed literally there in December 2020. And it's modelled on the International Fund for Ireland. So it's not, you know, it's not either or, it's both and. We need politicians at the table, but we have to deal with the root causes of the conflict. We have to deal with injustice and economics at the same time. Well, we'll have a look at an Australian flavor of this, the Uluru
1: Statement from the Heart up next. For the past two years, the Sydney Peace Prize hasn't gone to a person or an organisation. It went to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The landmark clarion call for truth-telling and walking together was itself a prize-worthy roadmap to peace, said the Sydney Peace Prize judges. But if building peace relies on a shared story, how do we all agree on it or even hear it, especially in our fragmented age? Well, one of the designers of the Uluru Statement is Professor Megan Davis, and she spoke to Fran Kelly in 2021.
6: I think the best way of looking at it is this, and a lot of old people said this in the dialogues, which I was really struck by, and that was they kept saying that reconciliation was the wrong word to use, Mm. that reconciliation was a word that you used where you were um, making friendly relations after, after, you know, you had a dispute as friends. And a lot of the old people said... Um, we haven't met yet, yeah? So Australia is one of the few countries in this world that never entered into peace treaties with its First Nations peoples. And um, that's what the Uluru Statement is. It's an invitation to Australians to come and meet us at The Rock and walk with us in a movement of the Australian people. And, um, and, and in many ways, it's, it's the, the beginning of this peace treaty. Um, it's the beginning of the settling of unfinished business. And so that's why the truth-telling is so critical and was such a big part of not just the dialogues but, but the Uluru outcome. Um, once we meet and walk together and commence this journey of truth-telling about what has happened and the stories of coexistence, then, then we get stronger as a nation and our people get stronger.
1: Professor Megan Davis... One of the designers of the Uluru Statement from the Heart and later this year, all Australians will get their say voting in a referendum to determine if the First Nations' voice to parliament should be enshrined in the Australian constitution. Well, Emma, Leslie, from your perspective in Cambodia, how do you see the uh, Australian Indigenous, non-Indigenous relationships? Because in Southeast Asia, it's a very difficult place to be Indigenous.
3: Yeah, I mean, we have Indigenous people in Cambodia and in in a small number. I think one of the things I found interesting, I'm married to a Cambodian who would call himself a genocide survivor and was subsequently a child soldier and, and done a lot of the work on himself that we've talked about. But I think in his visits to Australia and to Indigenous communities, he talks about two things. One is Australians' inability to use the word genocide in a a modern Western nation state, that we don't say this bloody terrible thing has happened. Um, And, of course, we start to say that, but we never use the word genocide. And in a way he says, well, that opens up the possibility to then, yes, talk about the bad things, but also how do you come back from that? And the second thing he talks about is, the concept of time and Western concept of time is so linear and so um, short, really. Um, And he talks about the sort of healing that has to happen over the, the hundreds of years of storytelling, but equally that you go forwards and you come backwards and you go forwards and you come backwards. And so in our sort of analysis or sharing from our experiences in Southeast Asia is, I think, more than truth-telling because there are multiple truths and we had so many nations in Australia and such different types of relationships across the country, we really need to dig deeper into this concept of dialogue. And dialogue, not at just places like The Rock, but in every school, in every community, in every neighbourhood somehow, is to be able to start hearing each other more deeply. And in my view, dialogue is suspending judgment. It's future-focused, it's open-ended, it might lead us in directions that we don't expect. And so so the referendum is awesome and is needed, but we're going to have to do a hell of a lot more to address the deep, structural, systemic violence that we still have in Australia today, because the predominant system of Australia, the Constitution, our court system, our school system, is a white, imported Western system. And it's hard for us white people to acknowledge that. It's hard for us to take that on board, and even to get it and to understand what that means. So, so everybody has to listen deeply, and it needs to be a dialogue. But, um, but I think we're on the on the way. We've started, but I think um, we don't want to leave it too much longer before we progress And My fear is, I heard a politician this morning say, um, referendums rarely get passed in Australia, and I thought, well. It's not a great way for us to already be setting ourselves up for that to fail. We better be careful that we have a multitude of other things in place to be sure that the First Nations people understand how serious we are about wanting to address address the terrible genocide that they have experienced, but equally how it continues right until today in the systems and structures they live in.
1: And what's your view, Gary Mason? How are we going to do this when there's a significant portion of the country who not only says there was no genocide, uh, but that Australia was settled, not invaded?
2: So, well, it's a very relevant point. I, mean, I do extensive work in the United States there as well. and I mean, Brand Stevenson puts it very well. He says this, when we get close, we hear things that can't be heard from afar. We see things that can't be seen. And sometimes that makes the difference between acting justly and unjustly. And the same is happening in the United States. For many people, they just want to draw a thick red line under slavery. They want to do the same in Australia and in many other spaces as well. But unless people get up close and personal, humanize one another, listen to one another, engage with one another. I mean, I think I said the last time when I was on your program, I quoted a South African theologian where he said, reconciliation is no cheap matter. It does not come about by simply papering over deep-seated differences. So this phrase that I often hear people of my skin color saying, white people, can you not just get over it? No, we can't. Because what is covered up, theologically, cannot be repented of. So if people are gonna repent of this and acknowledge they've done wrong, things need to be brought into the open, or to quote Jesus, we need to shine a searchlight on what happened, because if not, it's completely dishonest. And to quote that, a theologian in South Africa, they said, the running sores of society cannot be healed with the use of a sticking plaster or a band-aid. Reconciliation presupposes an operation, a cutting to the very bone, without anesthetic. We need serious, serious surgery.
1: Well, final question to, to both of you. What's the most important lesson on that journey that you've learnt between you in the half century of building peace? Uh, Emma Leslie.
3: Well, one is I always say peace is always possible and persistence pays. But from this conversation, I'd want to highlight that restorative justice is what we're really hungering for around the world actually dealing with the hard questions but towards wanting to be in right relationship with one another.
2: And Reverend Gary Mason? Racial justice comes before racial reconciliation and I'm one of the church's greatest critics um, who assume if only we could get black people and white people worshipping in church together, all will be well. Nonsense. In America they had a in the nineteen nineties, they brought blacks and whites into football stadiums, and encouraged white people to hug a black person in the name of reconciliation. Nonsense! Reconciliation begins when you deal with the root causes of the conflict and the injustice. Then, after that is done, let's do the hugging. Then,
5: oh, if
1: you
2: <laughs> went in Belfast,
1: I'd give you a hug. Um, that okay. brings <laughs> us. That, that brings us to the quiz. Which end up next? Yes, it's Wits End. The God Forbid quiz. Looking at war and peace, we begin with the buzzers as always. Gary Mason, your buzzer is the secret precondition to peace. Attest it.
4: Love is a battlefield.
1: Ah, love is a battlefield. When we do eventually get peace, that's because of this. Dr. Emma Leslie, test your buzzer. Love is in the air. Ah, good Australian song, Love is in the Air. Now, first question, the doomsday clock uh, founded by Albert Einstein in the 40s is this symbolic measure of how close we are at any given time to nuclear Armageddon. Well, on Tuesday, scientists moved the clock from 100 seconds to midnight to what time? 10 seconds? No, it was a 10-second contraction. Namely, we've gone from 100 seconds to midnight to 90 seconds to midnight.
2: Okay, so I read 10 seconds somewhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was a 10-second drop. And now we're a minute and a half away from nuclear Armageddon, but symbolically. Now, next question. Of all the wars and conflicts that are currently underway as we speak, the longest-running war, the oldest war, began when? 35 years ago. Sixty-five years ago, eighty-five years ago, or a hundred and five years ago?
2: I'm just going to guess
1: eighty-five. Well, I'm I'm sad to report this war has been going for a hundred and five years. It's uh, Iran's conflict with its Kurdish population it began in 1918 when a, a Kurdish tribal revolt against Persian rule was uh, suppressed. That. War continues, uh, low-level war. The violence killed 500 people in 2012. Um, what's noteworthy, to take another extreme, about the Anglo-Zanzibar War in 1896? What's noteworthy about it? Yeah.
3: No idea.
1: <laughs> it was the shortest war in history.
3: That's why we don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's, yes. Yeah, the, the British tried to pick their pick as the Sultan of Zanzibar, uh, Prince refused to accept him, so the British Navy uh, shelled the palace. Within 45 minutes, 500 were killed. The prince was defeated. The English installed their puppet, Sultan, 45 minutes, and the uh, shortest recorded war in history came to an end. That's the good news. The sad news, though, is that the program has come to an end. But uh, we'll, we'll call it a draw on the quiz. Emma and Gary, thanks for being a part of it. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Emma Leslie, thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Thank you so much and and may we continue on in this conversation. It's much needed worldwide.
1: Dr. Emma Leslie is an Australian Cambodian. She's spent more than 25 years in Southeast Asia trying to secure and maintain peace. She's the founder and director of the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies in Cambodia. And Reverend Dr. Gary Mason founded and directs the Belfast-based peace organisation Rethinking Conflict. He's helped build peace in Northern Ireland and also works in the Middle East and beyond. With that we have reached the end of God Forbid. You can follow and share the podcast on the ABC Listen app. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid.